What are you doing? It's okay, Kate, you're safe. What are you doing? Hey, I said, what are you doing? And I'm Av Sinetsky, and today we are going to talk about what we watched, new releases in the month of December, and we will also be doing a preview for our next episode, which, like last year, will be a we will be doing our uh, now annual bracket of the best movies of the year that just passed. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. We have a kind of a little bit of a uh, mini bracket to determine what will be in the main bracket because, you know, there's nothing better than one bracket. That's it's a second bracket. As anyone who followed us along on our odyssey of sports movies, if you want to play in the major leagues, you got to spend years battling it out in, in the minors. So we have about 16 movies fighting for anywhere from three to eight spots. Uh, to wrap up our 32 uh, best of 2020 bracket. Uh, just before we begin, I feel like I want to go back to a time when the real world seemed boring such that we went to the movies for drama, for horror, for mystery, for political intrigue. It's making me rethink my love of based on a true story type movies. I'm almost thinking like, no, I want my movies to not be based on real life. Like I want real life to be banal and safe and, you know, Joe Biden. And I want entertainment to be strictly fictional. I want entertainment to have zombie attacks on Congress, mass pandemics, and people shut up in their homes. I want that to be a strictly fictional cinematic experience. I've always had a bias toward the based on true story type movies. I'm feeling less and less inclined. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think there's definitely been uh, some nights, especially like in the last week where I was like even thinking like, well, I had planned to watch a movie tonight. I'm just going to follow Twitter instead because that's more exciting and interesting than any movie could provide. What movie am I going to watch where there are people giving like live reports of an ongoing attempt to uh, overthrow the government? And then what are we going to do about it? Like that's <laughs> more exciting than any movie. Being as it may, the idea of watching classics in the last few weeks of December, when you're trying to tie up your, you know, year of movies is, is outrageous because there's just so many come down the pipeline. Four of my top 10 movies of the 2020 I saw in December, six of my top 13. And I avoided, as of December 31st, seeing any of the so-called 2020 movies. So Nomadland, Minari, The Father, One Night in Miami. I did come around to your perspective of breaking news. <laughs> I dislike critics releasing a podcast or writing a list while we're still in 2020 and mainstream audiences won't see a movie for two months to say Nomadland was the best of 2020 when it isn't going to come out really for like, you know, 60 days. To me, that's like, so to speak, untruthful. But for us to talk about the best movies of 2020 in February, I think kind of retroactively at that point, it's very fair to like fold movies in January and early February into the past year if their directors identify them as you know, being past year material. That's kind of what I've come around with. I didn't see some of those highly regarded movies, and it, to me, was still an outstanding December of movie releases. But yeah, curious to hear what ones really jumped out for you. 
one just right off the bat that I really enjoyed, really had a nice time with was Soul, the new Pixar movie. That, that's uh, on my list of movies I disliked. But they, well, fair enough. I watched it with my kids. We had a really nice time with it. Pixar just, I think, keeps pushing the full of, of animation that we can expect from it to different levels. I thought it, Soul was just, for starters, just like a great New York City movie, given what we've gone through the last year where New York City has just been empty. It was just so nice and nostalgic and people living life and just kind of like going on and basking in it. So, you know, obviously that's something about it that isn't like inherent to the movie, but I think it hit me at the right time in that regard. Well, that's too bad. You're the barber and now you're unhappy. Whoa, whoa, slow your road here, Joe. I'm happy as a clammer, man. Not everyone can be Charles Drew and Vinton blood transfusion. For me, playing piano with Dorothea Williams, I know. <laughs> you are not all that. Anyone could play in a band if they wanted to. Don't pay Paul any mind. People like him just bring other people down so they can make themselves feel better. Oh, I get it. He's just criticizing me to cover up the pain of his own failed dreams. Oh. <laughs> you cut Joe. I wonder why sitting in this chair made you things, Des. That's the magic of the chair. That's why I love this job. I get to meet interesting folks like you, make them happy, and make them hits. I wish the entire movie would have been set in New York. I wish it would have been sort of like a cartoon version, so to speak, of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, a movie we'll touch on, I believe. I agree with some of the criticisms that I'm sure you'll level that I've heard others in terms of the kind of like the heaven mechanics and the way that was all portrayed not being the best. I don't think that was the, the movie's strong suit, mm. to your point. I really enjoyed every second that we spent in the real world, even with some of the like soul world shenanigans being manifested there. I, I kind of viewed that as a like ancillary gimmick to like tell the real story that like didn't, that's not in the same way where like in Inside Out it was essential to what the movie was about and therefore if the mechanics don't work and that stuff doesn't work for you, then there's no movie. I thought that was more of just like a prologue to the movie. Joe was just a really empathetic character i think the world that they created around him was really interesting and beautiful and warm enjoyed spending time in it and i thought it had a simple but resonant message and you know sometimes sometimes cliches are cliche for a reason it's it's about the way that those uh ideas are presented and i thought the idea that presented here of stop and smell the coffee every once in a while and realize what's really important in your life understanding that like your career and your passion projects are for yourself and if you know you're you're not getting out of them what you need to then you need to kind of take stock in what are the really important things in your life that you get uh value out of and that really are what makes being a life worth worthwhile i am so impressed by this movie in that this is the most out and out completely adult pixar movie yet there are elements they sprinkle in to keep the kids entertained and like you saw this with kids um, i didn't so you can speak to that but i'm impressed at how pixar has the confidence to really make an adult cartoon because until now I think they've been basically kids movies with adult themes sprinkled in and this was an adult movie with kid elements kind of sprinkled in. Things I don't like, the 22 character, the soul landscape, you know, you called it the heaven. I think it's, it's blandly animated, blandly voiced, blandly written. I think the overall theme to me is generic and a little bit, you know, called it a cliche. Some people it work, for me it didn't. The cat is the only part of the New York narrative that just sticks out to me like a sore thumb and i think the cat is like a very kitty it's like yeah. very for like little kids to find it fun but to me like the cat not only was it poorly animated i felt compared to everything else but it was just like distractingly annoying and i didn't need it there maybe it's like a residue of cats that i just dislike cats <laughs> in city environments when i think of pixar movies of the past there's like several standout i won't forget that scene i'll go back to youtube and watch that or distinct characters and there's nothing like that in this movie for me. I mean, you know, maybe like 
a leaf falling from a beautifully animated uh, New York City. Look at Up, if I look at Inside Out, they have scenes that every single time I go back and watch them, I'm emotionally hit every single time. And I wasn't really emotionally affected by anything in Seoul. And I can't think of any scene I would like be motivated to go back and watch in a YouTube short that would give me that. And therefore, to me, Seoul is, I admire it, but I, it's not a movie I would think. All right. What do you have to uh, suggest? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom would be one that I would immediately respond with since I said it, it has parallels to Seoul. You know, it's about uh, a black African-American jazz group and some of the challenges that they have. The reason to see this movie is really two things. One, Chadwick Boseman, Bosman. I mean, I have to butcher three last names in episode. It's in the contract. But uh, I, I think it's Bozeman. Bozeman, yeah. I mean, particularly in his case, I feel I should respect the way he would have wanted to pronounce. He is enthralling in this movie. I kind yeah. of gotten used to him from his like standout roles in the Marvel universe as being this very staid, and you know, also what he was for Spike Lee in The Five Bloods, where I thought he was great but as this kind of very staid, saintly type figure. And he's, a, he's an electric wire in this movie. He's just so dynamic. Every single scene he's in, every time he talks, he's the reason to see this movie. And secondly is, look, this is a movie by a master playwright and this is his master work and the script reflects that. It's a little stagey, but also the script is so rich. It lives in its historical nuance. The man come in here, call you a boy, tell you to get up off your ass and rehearse it. You ain't had nothing to say except, yes, sir. <laughs> I can say yes, sir, to whoever I please. What you got to do with it? I know how to handle white folks. I've been handling them for 32 years. Now you gonna tell me how to do it? Just cause I say yes, sir, don't mean I'm spooked up by him. I know what I'm doing. Let me handle it my way. We're gonna handle it then. I'm my own person. Just let me alone. All right, all right, let me you right. I apologize. Ain't none of my business. You spooked up by the white man. <laughs> All right, see, that's the shit I'm talking about. Y'all back up and leave Levy alone. Oh, come on, Levy. We was all just having fun. Yeah. Toledo ain't said nothing about you. He ain't said about me. You just taking it all wrong. Ain't meant nothing by it, Levy. Levy got to be Levy. And you don't need nobody messing with him about the white man. It's in my top 10 for you. This is a movie where I was much more wowed and impressed by the performances than the movie itself. Um, I agree with you. Chadwick Boseman is incredible in this. He just like owns every scene that he's in. Viola Davis, I think, is, you know, her usual great self, just like portraying these very larger than life characters, hits it out of the park. You know, this is adapted from a play. And I think that's very obvious as you're watching the movie, which, you know, isn't necessarily a criticism. It's just like, a different type of movie than other movies that we generally talk about. And it's, it's you know, they don't do a lot to hide what it is. You know, I wasn't as just like into the story and the plot and everything that I was seeing on screen as much as I was the acting performances. I enjoyed it and it's, it's a movie that I would recommend, but I don't think I'm quite as high in it as you are. To me, this was both very entertaining while also being very educational. I, I didn't know who Ma Rainey was. Um, I don't know about you, like, you know, the very, the way this movie begins, which is probably its most cinematic moment with the people running in the forest. I was thinking they were like running away. And I guess the movie somewhat is trying to suggest that. I thought they were like running away from slave traders. They're just running, you know, spoiler of the first two minutes of the movie. They're running to a Ma Rainey's uh, concert. To me, a movie that can both be educational and entertaining is always a big plus. So I would strongly recommend Ma Rainey's and it's on Netflix. So it's easy to grab. And it's yep. exciting because as I said, this is the movie version, as you said, of a play I'm not so familiar also with his work, but I believe August Wilson is the name of the, the playwright. And yes. he made Fences, he made yep. this, and father of 
the father of David Washington? Yes, I sort of say the father of David Washington. Denzel apparently is committed to making movies out of all of August Wilson's works. So he starred in Fences, he produced this. August Wilson is a good tie-in. His work, he made sort of these, uh, I think it's like nine plays set in Pittsburgh, I believe. Yeah, He's best known for a series of 10 plays collectively called The Pittsburgh Cycle. Exactly. Plays in the series include Jitney, Fences, Mulraney's Black Bottom, Joe Turner, something, The Piano Lesson, King Headley. So two of them won the Pulitzer Prize. He's like the great African-American playwright. Fences um, and The Piano Lesson. That's a great tie-in to what many people are calling kind of the standout cinematic production of 2020, which is August Wilson's 10 stories about Pittsburgh, which in, do, in then he tries to sort of capture the entire African-American experience through multiple stories that are kind of thematically connected in the whole. It's very reminiscent of a series. Happiest season. <laughs> exactly. It's very reminiscent of a rom-com that came out in December. No, it's very reminiscent of the Small Axe series, of course, uh, to do something fairly similar. And like I saw August Wilson invoked repeatedly one of the inspirations from the Small Axe series. So I have seen all five of them. Just, you know, big picture. This is a series of five films. Four of them, I would say, are short films. They're somewhere between 60 and 80 minutes. One of them is a full, like, two-hour, full, regular movie. Remember when and... a movie could be 90 minutes was normal, so 80 minutes was, like, also normal? I, w- I miss those days. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting about Small Axe is that, like, I feel like the whole industry and, like, you know, the, you know, movie and TV Twitter is, like, slowly everyone's coming to the consensus that, like, we should just stop with these stupid labels and just everything is just uh, something to watch at this point. Small Axe is, like, you know, we, we had, like, a little discussion in the group of, like, is it a show or is it a TV? And, like, honestly, who gives a crap? It's a thing that's streaming on TV that I could watch. It's good and just watch it. Like, who cares what you call it? Like, it's mm. all kind of, like, becoming what makes Queen's Gambit a movie, just because like somebody split it into chapters so mm. what makes that a tv show just because somebody said oh every 60 minutes you should stop and then or start the next episode like it's just you know the, the there's very few tv shows that even like have the episodic structure anymore where mm. like there's like a standalone episodes with you know a theme for that episode or something that's all ties together it's you know it's these netflix shows especially or these miniseries they film six hours they package it for tv they split it into six parts and i don't at a certain point there's no difference between that and the irishman fair enough you know i think that there's people maybe of a certain generation like larry david who their movies are bad and their tv shows are great so they help us understand the difference but you know as i said that's a previous generation for us. yeah so anyway um the small acts is like five completely distinct stories so like you could watch one or you could watch three you could watch all five and not the others you won't miss anything it's an anthology that focuses on the experience of west indian immigrants in london during the 60s and 70s thought of it almost as like a you know a british version of the wire in certain respects and that like Mm. each one kind of focuses on a different element of society but explores common themes the way that you know season four of the wire focuses on the schools and season one is about the cops and the drug dealers and season five is about the media and season three is about the politics like it's it's major spoilers for the wire by the way yeah well you know just what the season's kind of focused on but it's uh more similar themes and ideas by going through different parts of society and i would say all five installments are at least good like there's no i don't think there's any of these five that you would watch and not get something out of and appreciate in some regard that's two were the first two mangrove which is a a pretty formulaic but still well done and interesting because it's about like you know different people that we're used to kind of you know trial about Issues of today, like a British version of Chicago 7 movie. Yeah, the Sorkin movie. Lover's Rock is the second one. And I know that's a movie that you absolutely love. So I'll let you speak about that more than I am. But that's kind of just like a 
a showcase of just like this essentially a dance party at somebody's house and kind of just like showing the lies of these people when they're not being harassed for the most part and where they kind of get to enjoy each other and enjoy their lives so it's kind of a a palate cleanser for the other four that are much heavier i saw the first two the two that you mentioned i've never really loved steve mcqueen movies kind of like a harshness to them it just doesn't really speak to me and so i've never really loved never really loved these movies i've seen you know the ones that people like a bit more and i don't dislike them but they're not something i'm drawn to so i wasn't necessarily overly drawn to to these Mangrove and Lover's Rock, I thought, were well-made movies. Lover's Rock, the reason it's my number one movie of 2020, boom, I'll just drop that in there. I always like to sort of say movies are special or they're recommended. It's the only movie so far, the only movie of 2020 that earned my special kind of uh, tier. So it's, it's in a tier by itself. That said, it would be in the bottom of that tier compared to those 2019 and 2018 movies that were in the similar tier. But what Lover's Rock does so well, which to me the best movies do, and I would kind of compare it to Uncut Gems, a movie I like a lot more. A great movie is a movie that has a sense of itself that when you watch it, it just takes you somewhere. And everything in the movie, the acting, the script, the the cinematography, how it's filmed, the music, everything lends itself to their overwhelming sensory experience. And with Uncut Gems, that was this feeling of following around this corrupt, grimy, New York Gems, uh, you know, salesman, and kind of just getting sucked into the experience that he's causing to himself. And in Lover's Rock, as you said, I mean, this movie is an intensely exhilarating sensory experience into this dance party for the evening. And what the movie does so well, outside of what I mentioned, it distills the universal and the particular. So the universal, the dynamics of being at a party, uh, the dynamics of gender, the dynamics of relationships, which are things that, you know, I identify with each of those in ways, despite the fact that I am not a West Indian immigrant in 1970s UK. And then it also has the particular. It's a movie deeply about reggae music at that time. It's a movie, you know, again, set 40 years ago at this point in the past. You know, it also has, as I kind of was mentioning in terms of Pixar movies and soul, it has so many special scenes, like the condensation dripping down the walls, the way that the men reach out their hands to take the women onto the dance floor, the way that people sort of make glances at each other over the dance floor, the way that there's a sort of, you know, female dance peak special part of the movie that a lot of people have spoken about. And then there's sort of like a male dance scene toward the end and the energy in the movie, literally the energy that comes off to me, the screen. It's the movie I'm going to take so far from this year. So I couldn't praise it enough. But look, I didn't like it enough to want to go see the rest of Small Axe. And Mangrove, to me, I'll just say, did not like, would not recommend. Chicago, Trial of Chicago 7 is both more engaging, more entertaining, and more complex, which I was not expecting. And my feeling from Mangrove is, why is everyone always yelling and angrily yelling? And I get that like they're upset and they have a reason to be upset, but the entire first half of the movie outside of like one uh, West Indian grandma, I feel every other character only yelled. That was the only tone. And the movie is just overly kind of, everything is black or white. All the bad guys are deeply, you know, one kind. And I don't mean black and white in color in racial terms. I mean, give me Chicago 7, if you want to see a great movie set in the Old Bailey, go check out In the Name of the Father. It's a much better Old Bailey uh, court movie. So with Lover's Rock, I kind of agree with you that because I think it's a an exceptionally well-done version of what it is. The most Hangout movie you're ever going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can be a, a huge fan of Hangout movies. My favorite movie of last year was mostly a Hangout movie. Where Lover's Rock kind of loses me a little bit is that it's a Hangout movie where there isn't really even much dialogue. It's really just people hanging out like like i need i don't necessarily need like a story but like i need something to latch on to more than just like being a fly on the wall at a dance party and that's why to me it doesn't 
enter like the, the, the top of that top tier, you know, like an uncut gems, which has a complete story will always be a lot more special for me. To me, Another Round is a great hangout movie. Uh, it's a midlife crisis movie, men in their 40s and 30s, I suppose, who decide that if they drink a lot, they can sort of come to terms with their midlife crisis and their lost youth. Mads Mikkelsen is, is incredible as the lead. It's like, it's the best movie I've seen him in. And the ending is, what, is the best ending, I think, of the year. It's, it's one of those movies you should almost only watch for the ending, which I won't spoil. So another round, if you like hangout movies, strongly recommend. I think we both want to talk about Promising Young Woman, so why don't we do that? Okay. A movie that you're encouraging people to see or telling them they can see? Oh, absolutely. I, I thought it was, uh, at a minimum, I think you, this is a movie everyone will find entertaining. There My are, top think, 10. Top 10 material. For me. Yeah, I think there are, are definitely criticism of this movie. You have a lot to say about that, so I'll let you kind of deal with that. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? Carrie Mulligan is awesome in this movie. She dominates the screen. An absolute tour de force performance by her. It's extremely relevant and deals with contemporary issues of today. Does so in a very cinematic and creative fashion. And I think it's just like highly, highly entertaining, regardless if, if, of what you think any issues this movie has or does not have. So I, it's an absolute recommend for me. Margot Robbie was one of the producers of the movie. Uh, she's not an actor in it. Would you have liked the movie more? Would you think it would have been a better movie if she would have had the lead role? Because it's definitely like a Harley Quinn without ruining anything, without spoiling anything. There's a Harley Quinn element to the lead role. And I was kind of wondering, hey, I could have seen Margot Robbie as the lead in this movie instead. I wonder um, if yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see Margot Robbie pulling off what Carrie Mulligan does in this movie. Margot Robbie is an incredibly good actor. So, of course, she could probably do this. But, mm -hmm. you know, there are things I'm open to changing about this movie. Uh, Carrie <laughs> Mulligan would be at the bottom of the list of things that I would yeah. change about this movie because she hits a home run here. So I, I, don't, I think that's like the last thing I would change. We'd agree with you. There's like a, a strong Harley Quinn. It's a woman who feels wrong that is therefore has no problem with becoming an agent of chaos and basically yeah. being the instrument of a reckoning, whether it's deserved or not. And that could be debated about each individual person, you know, how guilty they were. But the, the, the overall broad movement of something has been going on for a long time that needs to change and we need to take possibly extreme measures to change it is is definitely something that she pulls off extremely well in this. Sometimes when I see a movie and I'm really engaged, I want to go, and I can't yet speak to Al because, you know, we're a strict once a month podcast. And therefore, what I'll do is I'll go on Rotten Tomatoes and I always only read the negative reviews, even if I love the movie in this case, because uh, I just find the negative reviews kind of engage me more for some reason. So I put together the five criticisms that were cited. The last two are spoilers, so I'll kind of like identify when I mention those. But let me quickly do the first three. So the first three, I would say people criticize it for having a tonal dissonance a message dissonance, and then a plot dissonance. And I'll break those down. Tonal, basically, they say, on the one hand, it smashes a cute rom-com into a dark revenge story. And people point to the Paris Hilton pharmacy scene where they're singing a Paris Hilton song as kind of like the biggest faux pas, like what is that doing in this like dark revenge story? That's the tonal bit. My response to that is, it's absolutely necessary because this movie is in large part a criticism of those rom-coms. It's a criticism of the sort of promising nice boys from those movies that inhabit those movies. And this movie's main core is deconstructing that promising young man, that nice boy. 
And therefore, to me, it's like essential to this movie that it has that total dissonance. And I agree, like the total dissonance can throw you off the movie at points, but it's so essential that it's there. No, I don't even understand the criticism. I, that, that's, I, I agree with you. Okay, great. So the second one, they say a message dissonance. And what they point to is they say, look, the movie has this message against these like bar creeps, these nice guys who come up to you in the bar and then they sort of take advantage of women uh, who are inebriated, et cetera. And therefore they say, but look, in the movie, the nice boyfriend effectively uses the same line as the bar creeps. Both of them are in different circumstances, both of them in different circumstances are asking the lead, the woman, to go up and have sex with them. And my response to that, it's first off absolutely necessary that they have that contrast, they have that comparison in the movie because it gets what critics of consent culture, and this is a much bigger tangent that we don't have to go down on, but critics of consent culture, sexual consent culture, what they often miss is a single word which is kind of the silver bullet for you know, what makes sense and what is a crime and what shouldn't be, context. It's so obvious if you understand the reality of context when something is an interested date and she's sending you signals that when you stop outside your apartment and be like, hey, you wanna like go upstairs, that that is appropriate versus in an inebriated bar stranger who when you're helping her go home, you say, hey, I live close by, do you wanna maybe go up and have a nightcap, that that is wrong. And therefore people who criticize and say, hey, what kind of message is this movie sending? To me, not only misunderstand the movie, but they don't understand the basic concept of context, which explains when something is inappropriate or is appropriate. Team Sam still or your team Chris? I'm, I'm team Sam. I guess I kind of hear what they're saying, but like, I think your response is exactly right. I mean, this movie shows the ways in which people take advantage of the lack of non-consent and interpret that as consent. And like, you know, there's, I think there's been like a big movement, especially on college campuses to like mm-hmm. reframe, um, you know, the, the traditional framing of, of like the slogan was no means no. Mm-hmm. And kind of like flipping that on his head and saying yes means yes, that it's not sufficient that the person didn't like vocifer- vociferously object to having a sexual encounter with you. Like you should look for affirmative consent. Um, you should just presume that everybody that's in a bar drinking too much is interested in having sex with you like this is Mm -hmm. is not the case and you know barring somebody making overt actions and you with their words and behavior to show that they are interested in having a sexual encounter with you the default should be that they're not yeah and like and again just so like it's that's what dating is dating is knowing like when you're at the movie theater with your crush can you slip your arm across her shoulder and like you know like is she sending you the signals and is there a context where that's appropriate or is that a context where you're being a creep you know, that, that's just life. Like you have to learn that and you have to learn that particularly if you're a guy in today's society. So to me, people who make that criticism are just, they got to go back teenage dating school. Ties in well with like, you know, the, uh, like the Harvey Weinsteins and Louis C.K.'s of the world where mm-hmm. people that will defend those behaviors and say, well, the person didn't say no. Like all he did was like, he took his penis out and like, she could have said, no, I don't want to do that. But like, to your point, there's like a, a socially accepted like progression of how it works when a, somebody, people who have never met each other before progress from, hi, I'm so-and-so, to we're, we're having sex now. And like mm-hmm. that usually involves a series of like increasingly more intimate steps. It usually doesn't jump from, my, my pants are off and my penis is out. Yeah, and this is where I've, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll just share this so that the, the, the angry feminists can come at me because, you know, we do need a little bit more controversy, I guess, on this podcast, which is, I've argued with friends of mine 
who are who take the point where they say they want dating to become a world where everything is explicit consent. And I say no, like I want things to sort of stay in that world where there's like an area of mystery. There's an area of reading social cues and you know reading what's appropriate and knowing that like there's sort of a eroticism to like the first time you put your hand around the shoulder at the movie theater, you know, with, with your girlfriend, as opposed to sort of having to like turn around and be like, hey, can I now put my hand on your shoulder? But again, like it just boils down to, as you said, like knowing that there are certain times when the social cues and the context is not there, or what you're doing is incredibly inappropriate and therefore assaulting. Third one up, plot hole. What critics have said, the entire Leeds crusade in this movie is a failure, and therefore it's a big plot hole in sort of her motivation, because as we learn midway through the movie, and this isn't a spoiler to say, is when she tries to pick up a black guy and do to him what she's done to the others, he kind of reveals to her that, hey, like word has gotten around. It's known what she's doing, and yet guys are still taking advantage of women like her, even though they know there's like a blonde vigilante uh, out in the neighborhood. And my response is- That is the movie. That is the movie. It's that these nice guys keep trying to take advantage of women over and over, even after they know that there's a vigilante out there looking to get them. Nevertheless, they still do it. It also ties into the lead character's core trauma. So to me, that's like fundamental to the movie and it's not a plot hole whatsoever. And therefore that blew me out of the park, but that's a criticism. I think the movie also does a really good job of kind of like giving us two versions of almost the exact same scene. One mm -hmm. that kind of stops 90% of the way mm -hmm. and then one that shows you the full thing because yeah. you spend the f first good part of this movie not knowing exactly what she's doing with these guys. Like, yeah. you, don't, you don't know, like, how severe this is getting. And then yeah. you see the second version of it, and you're like, oh, okay, I, now I get what's happening here. It definitely puts a different spin on the whole thing. Like, you, you come off of that, like, opening scene thinking that we're dealing with a completely different yeah. woman than it turns out we are. What you're saying now is directly getting into my last two criticisms. Uh, because what you're saying now actually touches on something where some critics harped on. And I think you and I took it in a way where we really liked it, but some critics couldn't stomach that. So can I do a quickly spoiler, 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 we'll put it in the show notes for the next three minutes. They wanted to see a 1970s, 80s revenge fantasy and the entire plot they think was leading toward that where this woman, you know, has like blood coming off her hamburger in the first scene because she kills men. And therefore they wanted the movie to go down with a dark revenge, like she kills the men, etc. And that's how they wanted the movie to end because I would have like, in that kind of class 70s woman gets revenge style movie the movie does end pretty darkly but okay fair enough and my response to that is no like again that ending of her just like wiping out all of the men at that party that is a fantasy and it runs against the movie's entire message of how trapped women feel in this nice guy misogynistic society and the movie's message is that you can't win by killing every nice guy in the world most of the guys in the world you know according to this movie's telling even again her nice boyfriend they're capable of that. And you're not going to correct society by killing everyone. You're going to do it by changing the culture. And so that's why I think those who sort of wanted murderous rampage type movie, whether from the ending or whether what you pointed to, Alvin, I agree with you, they wanted her to actually be like murdering people throughout the movie. That's not this movie. And I think this movie is smarter in that it isn't that. So that's my response to that kind of criticism of the ending. And then the last bit is that where they dislike the fact that it's like the legal system saves the day. And they say it's so hypocritical since the message of the movie is that it's the legal system which is, this, which is not protecting women against rape and assault. And my quick response is that it's not the legal system which is the problem. It's a cultural problem. It's rooted in our culture accepting casual nice guys behavior toward women. And we're not going to correct that by putting more laws into place. You, know, you can't legalize that out of society. 
what you can do is you can try to change the culture. I was hoping to find good criticism because to me, it's not a perfect movie. And like, I would have liked a movie that ended before that, I'll call it the PS scene, before yeah. the wedding scene. I would have liked it to end there because I think that would have been like a, a grimmer, but a, a necessary ending. But I'm sympathetic to the fact that I wanted a more, you know, a 90s style happy ending. I thought the ending was a little bit too tidy, for lack of a better word. Especially just like the timing of the text message, but fine, whatever. Yeah. It's just a, uh, a flourish at the end. I don't think the movie establishes that she's like savvy yeah. enough. I don't know what, what exactly was her plan going into that house. Like, is this exactly how she knew it would play out? That's a little bit hard to believe. There's just like so many variables of how things could have gone differently. I don't know what the movie wants us to think about whether or not justice was served on these men or whether this is a form of mob justice where men are being punished for something different than what they did but like we don't care because there needs to be a reckoning regardless of every of whether each individual case is exactly done right because like you know at the end of this at the end of the day this guy is arrested and he's going to be charged with murder right yeah now did he commit murder I don't think he committed murder. Like, he, he committed something. I think based on what we saw, he has some claim of self-defense. I mean, he was, like, tied to a, yeah. a bed by someone who seems wanted to injure him and possibly kill him. So, like, it's not like he murdered her, but, like, he's going to go down for murder. And now, am I sympathetic to him? No, he's a rapist. But, you know, we don't want rapists being charged with murder in a legal system. Like, that's not a system that is tenable long-term to work. So, I, and like, I just, I'm not sure I know what the movie's perspective is on yeah. that. And that's where I, got, I had, like, a little trouble with the ending. I just felt it was a really strong and challenging ending if it would have ended with the scene of her friend's Nicholas in the river near where her body, you know, sort of the remains of her body. And, like, it's just, like, the camera pans to, like, the necklace she wore to that party, which was the heart. And I thought the movie was going to end there. It was going to be this, like, women can't escape. Like, you can't escape this. And, and that, to me, is a fair criticism of the movie. Last question to you. Did you notice this? Because to me, it was very obvious, and I Googled it after the fact, and it's even more obvious. The groom looks very much like Kavanaugh. Like, a young Kavanaugh looks exactly like the groom, you know, the Supreme Court justice. So I was thinking they did that on purpose. I could be wrong. It could be just coincidental. To my mind, that was a, a part of the social commentary. Can't picture him at the moment, so I'm not sure. Kavanaugh is definitely, I would say, more than Weinstein. It's, hey, you know, we were just boys being boys. I'm a good guy. Look how I've encouraged women throughout my career. Like, that, that is, you know, that is the group. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. What are some movies people, as they're putting together their end-of-the-year list, they should really check out and some that they can definitely skip? Sound of Metal with Riz Ahmed. Another movie where he is just, like, absolutely sensational. I know there's a mo another movie that you saw with him that you thought he was even better, but yeah. um, I think you agree. I, I think you're not not quite as high on this movie as I was, but you you thought that he was excellent in it. He plays a uh, a drummer who finds out that he's losing his hearing and has to a just like grapple with losing something that has become so intertwined with his identity. Like he he just like doesn't think of himself as anything else other than you know a musician and like to to not be able to continue to play music and be in a band is just like absolutely uh, heartbreaking for him to deal with. He's, especially this is someone who has gone through addiction problems in the past and it's just like feels like he is losing like the one last thing that he had left that was like kind of like stitching his life together. Um, yeah. that's just and he's someone who conquered addiction and therefore he feels he can conquer life's challenges. This is a movie to me has a few issues. I think it's too drawn out, too long. I think the girlfriend is a key role and she's kind of just not in the whole movie. Um, and then she's kind of dropped on us at the very end. The most key characters who really works is the, the mentor, Def uh, Retreat. The actor's name is Paul Rashi, uh, Rassi. Obviously I'll butcher that. He's not an actor, is he? Or maybe he is. No, he is. Like, 
He is, but he was, but he does this in real life, I think, also. He is a Vietnam vet, and he is not deaf, but his parents were, so he grew up in a deaf household. And I think he's outstanding. I mean, his scenes have so much, have so much character. The core debate to me of the movie that he represents, do you accept fate in nature, or do you try to control your world and, like, push back against it? And one of the problems I have with the movie is I think the finger is too strongly on one side of that debate. And I think that's a, a classic debate that the movie kind of is just... A little, to me, it's a little bit too much on one side. This is a phenomenon that I, I only recently learned of. Um, I was at a friend's house and we were, we were talking about how I have a friend who's an audiologist who works with kids um, who suffer from hearing loss. And mm-hmm. she told me that there's almost no such thing. Uh, it still exists, but it's very rare now for like a kid who's born today to be forced to be deaf if they and their parents don't want them to be because the cochlear implants have gotten mm-hmm. so good and are so, you know, are affordable or, you know, you can get them re- relatively easily enough that like almost anyone with still some exceptions of course they choose to pursue that road like they can experience some version of hearing that can be life-changing there is a pushback from the deaf community who doesn't view this as necessarily a disability because you know it's an identity and there's another way around it namely using sign language and they fear for basically the eradication of their people for lack of a better word which is fascinating uh, obviously like i'm not gonna tell anyone else how to feel like to me as, as someone who's not a, de- a deaf person i would always view deaf people as it's a having, disability. having a condition that if they could choose to not have they would obviously choose not to have just like any medical condition that if there was a pill that you can take and not have it anymore and be able to hear you know you would obviously have it but obviously that's not the experience of many many deaf people and that's that's fairly eye-opening to think about it was definitely v- very fascinating to see that insight i think the movie really does a great job of casting a lens on both this issue and just a group of people that you just don't get to hear about that much it's in my top 15 i think a movie that's in my top five and I would urge everyone to see, I think it's the most overlooked movie of the year, and that's Mogul Mowgli. The first term is like a, a rap mogul. The second word, Mowgli, is like I guess, a term from the South Asia, India and Pakistan. It also stars Reza Ahmed, the lead of Sound of Metal. It's actually, superficially, it's like the same story, but it's very, very different. It's sort of a, a very fictional version of his own life. He is a, a hip-hop star before he became an actor. And this movie is about a hip-hop star who has to sort of wrestle with sort of a classic ethnic migrant generational conflict in the UK. Not too dissimilar from maybe what we saw in Blinded by the Light, but this is done like a thousand times more real and better. And some of the scenes of him as a hip hop star are just fantastic. Uh, This is a movie that really, really takes you to sort of a foreign culture. I mean, Blinded by the Light, the movie last year that we saw, Bend It Like Beckham sequel, that kind of has this like Hollywood veneer. Like you always know you're watching a movie about something. Mogul Mowgli, you really feel like you're living in the Pakistan you know, 1980s. To me, it's the best act. It's the lead role of the year. Ahmed, in a fair society, would obviously walk away with the best actor. I would urge people to see it. Uh, I'm going to throw just a few names at you. I won't really say anything more than if I like them or not. Black Bear is a movie I think people should see. I liked it, but I don't think the movie is as smart as it sort of seems to think it is. I think the second half of the movie is, is really fun. I really loved Black Bear. I love Aubrey Plaza. I think this is her best role to date, and that's saying a lot for me because I've loved her in a lot of things. It's a little of a, of a weird, trippy movie, so it's not going to be for everyone. The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is effectively a Coen Brothers movie, meets Thunder Road. Now, if you haven't heard of Thunder Road, you should go back and watch Thunder Road, which I think Avi, you and I both really loved. Yeah. Um, this is very similar to Thunder Road, but yeah, with yeah. like a horror movie slash Coen Brothers. Um, I also, I, I literally thought the female cop in this movie was just taken from a Coen Brothers movie. Like the same actress, the same exact clothing, everything. 
Yeah, um, I, I basically agree with everything you said. I, re- I enjoyed Wolf of Snow Hollow. Um, if you're going to see one Jim Cummings movie, you should see... Thunder Road. Is Thunder Road, yes. yes. Thunder Road is much better. This one, it, it explores the very similar themes. He plays a very similar character. It just kind yeah. of has this... Except like, without a mustache. Yeah, it just kind of has this like horror, possibly sci-fi element to it that I guess makes the movie maybe more... Might appeal to a different type more of accessible. audience. Yeah, more accessible. Yeah, more accessible in some ways, but not as good. Uh, another one which I know you're planning to see, to me, it's my favorite uh, animated movie of the year, Wolf Walkers. Absolutely beautiful visuals. It, ha- it gets extra credit for me for having that historical context since it does like play the real kind of Irish, uh, English, Cromwellian, Protestant England history. The problems with the movie is it's discount Miyazaki. It's basically Princess Monaco, but nowhere near as savvy and sophisticated. You ever see those like mini movies, those like five minute shorts at tourist sites? These days, uh, a lot of tourist sites, museums, you know, historical sites, they'll have these like mini movies you can sit down and watch on uncomfortable sure. benches. The people that made Wolfwalkers apparently used to make those for Irish tourist sites in Ireland. I heard about this after the fact, but even while watching the movie, I kind of felt like I was watching a more beautiful, deeper budgeted version of one of those. So it's hard to kind of put my finger on it. Definitely a movie to watch with your kids. Three others that have problems, but I would recommend The 24. Just Google what the 24 is about. You heard it from me. The 24th? The 24th, sorry, the 24th, yeah. It's the second half of the movie sort of lets you down. Fits into that African-American experience, which is one of the dominant themes of 2020 movies. Absolutely incredible true story. Amazed I never heard of the story before. It raises major, major questions. The lead in the movie is basically, looks like Barack Obama and is set up to be sort of Barack Obama. 14 is a low budget movie about female urban friendship. It tries to make too many sort of like, hey, we're a low-budget movie, so we're just going to show a train station for 15 minutes uh, because, you know, we're trying to kind of establish our bona fides. But it's still still resonant in sort of, I think, how it captures female friendship. And there's a movie, of, I think, that we both saw that's all about male friendship, a movie I disliked. And that would, I would be, would say, is a good twin companion if you want to watch movies about female and male friendship. Finally, the last movie I'd recommend is End of Sentence. It's blissfully obvious what the movie is. Um, there's no surprises. But it's a really fun movie. It's made really well. It has a really sweet message, which is nice in this year to sort of watch. A pre-canceled Shia LaBeouf. You know, I think he deserves the flack he's getting. But the main role in this movie was meant for him. Uh, It gave me shades of In the Name of the Father, if I can drop that twice in one episode. Um, It has a similar, I would say, overarching arc of like a son getting out of jail, his father who's a straight and narrow shooter, and then rebuilding the relationship together. So end of sentence... Um, you didn't give any dislikes. You know, I'm not going to necessarily tell you what to avoid, but a movie that has, no, I I saw, yeah, well, a movie that I saw getting a lot of praise and a lot of attention that I was really excited for based on like some of the people who I generally like their movie taste who love this movie. And then I watched it. I was like, I don't know why you like that was uh, The Nest. It's about this family that moves to London and, you know, there is a, you know, some shady stuff going on and we kind of like follow them as they, you know, deal with like their, you know, marital problems and family life and all that. Uh, I just like, I did not take to this movie at, at all. Another one, which I'm sure a lot of people saw and that I, a movie that I just thought was really not good. was uh, Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, it was uh very disappointing to me. I was uh, about as inclined to love this movie as anybody. Um, I, you know, I, I watched the first one with my daughters a week or two before. They, they loved that one. We got really excited for it. We, we got the TV ready to watch it at like one o'clock, an hour after it was released on HBO Max. They, they were excited to dress up in their Wonder Woman costumes. Mm-hmm. So like I, I went into this movie as, you know, 
pro to love it as anyone. Where were you dressed up as when you I was wearing my regular clothes. Okay. Um, And the takes on Wonder Woman are all over the internet, so everyone could go there. It's it's a movie that just really did not work for me from basically beginning to end. There were parts that were entertaining, but, you know, the bottom line is I'll say the same thing that I said about Dark Knight Rises, which is a movie that I also really did not like. If you're going to call a movie Wonder Wonder Woman 1984, make sure that Wonder Woman is in the movie for a good amount of the movie because there was a lot of Diana Prince. There was very little Wonder Woman. And that's, you know, that's the character. Very campy, very silly. And it was just a real dud for me. It disappoints me that the few blockbusters we got, this, Tenant, I'm trying to, you know, think of some others, maybe some better ones came out before COVID. It's just kind of disappointing that the blockbusters didn't really contribute anything to 2020. I mean, we'll talk about that a bit more next episode. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the thing about blockbusters is they can be very hit or miss. And, mm-hmm. you know, in some regards, quantity is just as important as quality. If you only get two blockbusters in a year, it's possible yeah. they'll both be duds. If you have 12, then you hope, probably you'll get three or four good ones. People felt they had to, like, go overboard to defend yeah. this movie because yeah. it's a female superhero movie. When, like, it's okay if there was a bad female superhero movie. If there's been a hundred stupid, bad garbage men superhero movies and like it's fine they made more and some of them are bad and some of them are good and it's okay like, also we were all okay bashing Catwoman uh, yeah I'm not sure and then like and then they like quickly announced that they're doing a third and I was like okay good sure I thought the first one was good and the second one was bad maybe the third one will be good like what like who cares it's a movie I'll just name drop some that disappointed me the climb is supposed to be a comedy I, I had no point in the climb that I laughed and therefore, uh-huh. the climb to me is a miss. Unless you're going to package it with 14 as two indie movies about male and female friendship, I would skip the climb. I was really excited about the climb. One of my more disappointing movies of the year. Yellow Rose, <laughs> I was excited in the sense that people said it's sort of like the Wild Rose of 2020. And it's very superficially the Wild Rose, the same narrative about like a, a non-Western uh, music fan, country music fan who gets into country. Yellow Rose is actually a movie about ICE. It's a movie about illegal immigrants in America. And that's the entire movie. It's a, it's, a, it's a political message movie, and it's just the characters are sort of flat, and the music is flat, and I just did not enjoy myself. So Yellow Rose is a no. The Climb is a no. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. It's a documentary with getting a lot of love. And the bit about it, which kind of every review mentions, is that it's set up to be that you're watching the final night of a bar in New Orleans, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. And you're watching the final night of this bar as the bar closes and sort of as the bar, sorry, not in New Orleans, in, I believe, uh, Las Vegas. And sort of with its closing, it's sort of the end of an era in Las Vegas, so to speak, this bar closing. And the entire movie is a documentary, so to speak, live capturing these various drunks as they kind of share life's wisdom. And what it turns out is that actually the movie is a sort of a stage documentary. It was filmed over five days in a bar in New Orleans where they took a bunch of barred guys they found in Las Vegas and were like, wow, you're really fun in a character. Let me throw all of you sort of cr- crazy bar types together and then just roll the cameras. I just find most drunk conversations at 3 a.m. are never actually that good, even though our memories after the fact, I don't know if you had this experience, you know, like after that, we're like, oh, wow, that was such a special night. But actually at 3.30 in the morning, you were just being like, wow, like this is so aimless. I just want to go home and sleep. And that's how I felt in this movie. Let Him Go is a Kevin Costner, Diana Lane movie that had a lot going for it in the first half and just completely goes off the rails and becomes a completely bland, boring, and skippable movie in the second half. So just skip, let him go, let them all talk. I promised myself after The Laundromat that I would not watch another Steven Soderbergh movie for a while. And I did not listen to my 2019 self. So, you know, you should listen to my 2021 self who will agree with the 2019 self and do not listen to the 2020 me 
because like most things the 2020 me is not reliable let them all talk is one of the worst movies of the year no question yeah i saw the last uh steven soderbergh metal metal street uh joint and decided to skip this one so yeah it, it's completely skippable I, I wish i had those two hours back and finally a movie that is okay but i'll tell you why it's not so great i'm your woman it's a 70s noir told from the perspective of the ignored wives of the gangsters. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, Goodfellas, but if the movie was only about the women at home. And the lead in it is marvelous Mrs. The lead Maisel. In Maisel, sorry, Maisel. <laughs> My wife likes the show. Rachel, Rachel Brashadad? Yeah, exactly. So she plays the lead here. looks completely different. Uh, it's sort of, if you know her from there, which I do a little bit, it takes you a while to realize, wait a second, is that the same person? The problem with the movie is that the basic conceit is that all the action is happening off screen. And as a result, the movie's boring because all the action is happening off screen. So we're just sort of at home with the wives and the girlfriends. And at some point it just doesn't, I, the movie can work for you though, if you like, you know, those kind of movies. If you like the Goodfellas type movie, this I think will fit into that, uh, will scratch that itch. But for the rest of us, um, those are a few movies you can skip as you're putting together your, uh, as you're closing the book like Avanayar on your 2020 watches. Let's take a jump at the 16 movies, eight matchups. And we have to choose eight of these to advance to our 32 movie best of the year bracket. So you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to say no now. You're gonna have to kind of drop some hate, I guess. Fair enough. One thing we should say to listeners, Av and I are credible, meaning we are going to the best ability that we can to have seen all 32 movies when we do our bracket next month. There's a few that will be there that I haven't seen. I'm sure there'll be a few Av hasn't seen. Within reason, we'll try to be credible and actually vote in that bracket based upon what we've seen. For these eight 16 movies, we're throwing it out the window. I haven't seen a bunch of these. I haven't seen a bunch of these. It doesn't matter. We're just going to decide and we'll go from there. Fair enough? Yep. Okay, great. So first matchup, Shithouse or Yes, God, Yes? I think you saw both. So which one? I, I, I did see both. Uh, this is what is fairly easy for me. I loved Shithouse. I thought it was unique. thought it was insightful. I thought it, it focused on a type of character that is often not given a lot of limelight, especially when it comes to college movies. Um, they're always about everyone having fun. They very rarely focus on the shy person who isn't fitting in in college. And I thought it just does a really great job of exploring that. Yes, God, Yes was a movie that I was excited to see, but I thought at the end was pretty banal. It, uh, it didn't really do much. It was kind of silly at, at times. And it's, it's not a movie that I would say definitely skip, but I thought Shithouse was far superior. I liked Yes, God, Yes um, a bit more. But I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, and I think there's a bit of a generic movie element to Yes, God, Yes, particularly the ending. So I'm willing to concede and give you Shithouse on that. Baccarat and Happiest Season. I think you saw both as well. I did see both. Um, here's one where I will say I vote to vote against my uh, my personal taste and preference because Baccarat, you know, even if you don't love it, it's it's definitely just like much more essential to the conversation and a, a movie that like pushes the limits of storytelling in a way yeah. that Happy Season obviously does not, even if you enjoyed it more. Wolfwalkers versus The Platform. Platform was what came out in the first quarter of the year. You were a big champion of it then. Wolfwalkers, we've touched on that you haven't had a chance to see yet, but you, you, know, you, you had a sense of what it is. This is a tough one for me to actually vote on because, as you said, I've only seen one of the two movies. Based on the way Wolfwalkers has been described, um, I expect to really like it. I'm going to push hard for the platform to be included here because that, that's a movie that I think falls in the category of essential to the movies of 2020 in a way that, you know, not every movie that's going to be in this bracket is just because it is so resonant to the, you know, political discussion of today. It, it approaches that discussion in such an out-of-the-box, interesting way. It's, it's not for everyone. This is a very 
gory movie. It's, you know, whether you want to call it a horror movie or technically part of another genre, there's a lot of like body horror in this movie that obviously is not going to make it for everyone. It is in Portuguese with subtitles, which of course will not make it for everyone, but it, it really just like explores income inequality and the issues of today. It's such a fascinating way that. Well, this is not a spoiler, but Wolfwalkers is in English, but with heavy. Irish. You need subtitles anyway. For you asked, I, I stopped it in the middle when my wife and I were watching and we were like, we can't understand what anyone's saying. So we put on subtitles. <laughs> Which I generally find like you is, is good either way. So yeah, in these two movies, I'd be surprised if either one was like, you know, I want to put all 32 movies in the bracket for me should have like, they could be a bracket buster. They could go all the way. I could see someone from what I've heard, and I actually haven't seen Platform and I was going to try to see it if I could. No, I could see someone making the case why Platform can somehow, you know, go toe to toe in a final four and maybe go all the way. I don't think, I mean, Wolfwalkers is a movie I'd recommend to everyone. It's my favorite animation of the year. It's impossible, I think, to make the case that Wolfwalkers is the best movie of the year, unless, again, you're like under eight years old. You know, because I think it is more of a kid's movie. I don't think it's the best of its type. As I said, Princess Monaco is that far back. So yeah, I would have voted for Wolfwalkers, I think, based upon my Nazi platform, but I'm sympathetic to your choice. Blow the Man Down versus Mangrove. Um, I'll put my vote first. I was unimpressed by Mangrove. I know it's an important movie. I know it's a movie people liked. We're putting Lover's Rock already into the, the bracket. Uh, that's not a reason to not put another small axe. You know, good movies should go in. But to me, Blow the Man Down was a lot more fun and it's sort of memorable. And I think it's a, a movie, you know, I think we're going to see those directors making other great things. I think it has great characters. To me, Blow the Man Down is an easy entry over Mangrove. Yeah, I liked Mangrove better than Blow the Man Down. I did not love Mangrove. I thought it was good. We are going to have uh, small acts represented in this bracket, so I don't think we need to go out of our way to have a second one if it doesn't make sense. But like, I'm also like not super eager to have Blow the Man Down in either. If, not, if you know, I, I would say this is maybe one that we could put a pin in, and if one of these other movies gets eliminated and we think... It's, it, it would be a, a, an injustice because it got mm -hmm. a, bad, a bad matchup. Maybe this is a place where we could put a pin and blow the man down. Where I'm not against having it in, but let's see what, what we knock out and maybe that could be a replacement there because I, I, I didn't love blow the man down. Yeah. It felt like the pilot to a TV series yeah. where, but then like, okay, and now what? Like it just, it didn't really add up too much for me. I'd be surprised if it was someone's best, but uh, you know, maybe it should be in the conversation. Let's stay on small acts and let's go to a movie that you saw, Red, White, and Blue which is uh, one of the smartest movies, Red, White, and Blue. Uh, maybe just give the one sentence what it is, because I'm not even so familiar. I didn't see it. And then it's going up against The Kid Detective, which The Kid Detective was a movie that I was, one of the most surprisingly movies that I liked this year. It has a lot more resonance in sort of thematic weight than the sort of superficial description of, hey, this is a movie about Encyclopedia Brown growing up as a kid detective, and now he's an adult detective that's never grown up. And, but there's actually a lot there in terms of, what do you want to call it? Like midlife crisis in your late 20s and 30s, mainly in your 30s. Um, so there's a lot more to the movie and it's really fun. And so that's my case for Kid Detective. I'm obviously voting for Kid Detective here, given that I wasn't even motivated to see Red, White, and Blue. Are uh, you going to make a case for Red, White, and Blue or you're going to go with Kid Detective? Yeah, I, again, I did, I did see The Kid Detective. So here's another one where there's only so much I could weigh in. And if it's in the bracket, I, I'll do my best to see it before our next episode. So that way I could actually have an opinion. Red, White, and Blue is, again, like I thought it was good. Like the thing about Small Axe for me, and, you know, I, I don't know how many people have, have seen all five. Like I thought all five were good. Like I thought they were all like good short films. They were interesting. They had what to say. Like they were all like B pluses or A minuses for me, which makes the whole 
thing as a whole, like very excellent. Like there's not that, that many, you know, like mm. mini series or anthologies or whatever it is that has like five installments where each thing is over an hour and all five are good. Like that's, that's something that to be credited. I, I didn't think that any of them were like amazing. And, you know, as I said, Lover's Rock, I think it, Lover's Rock, I think is excellent for what it is, but you know, we could debate whether or not that's my type of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Red, White, and Blue is, uh, it's, it stars John Boyega from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and he plays a black person who becomes, uh, who joins the police. And he's, you know, kind of debating this tension of, you know, he's joining the police who harasses black people in his community. Is that betrayal? Is that, you know, is it better to reform a system from the inside or the outside? You know, it gets into interesting things. He is, he's excellent at it. It's not a movie that you have to see. These are things that have been addressed in other works. It does, I don't think it breaks tremendous new ground. But like, if you do see it, I think you will enjoy it and appreciate it. So I am fine with having uh, the kid detective pass along, and I will try to see it, even though I have not seen it yet. Jumped ahead, thinking that you were actually going to conclude going with small, the small axe, red, white, and blue. But you actually ended up coming back on my side. So I'm going to put kid detective in now. It's like Lover's Rock could almost be like a catch-all in a way. Not that we're going to actually vote based on everything, but it's like Lover's yeah. Rock as like this great piece of a bigger thing um, in the bracket and like it goes be like lover's rock plus a little bit yeah um, it's carrying the legacy of of the of the other yeah i think that's the way to go rather than put in multiple small axe films yeah it was confusing on some best of the year lists people meant lover's rock but they just called it small axe and then you had to like zoom in or something to understand what movie they were talking about they called it like small axe episode two which I, I don't know. I think a lot of people didn't. Yeah. Well, it's just like, it's a confusing thing as we talked about yeah. earlier. I, I, yeah. uh, I believe the, the Los Angeles Films Critic Association gave its best picture to Small Axe. The, the, whole the series. Yeah. yeah. Which to me, like, again, we don't have to re-legislate that, but like my experience watching Mangrove, watching, you know, Lover's Rock is I could enjoy them very much as two separate movies. And the fact that they align adds to the whole, but it's not necessary. You're not really comparing apples to apples if you're comparing five thematic movies to, I don't know, Freaky or whatever it is. It's just, it's just like you're not comparing the same thing at that point. You know? um, let me stay on Freaky then. Freaky, which uh, again, maybe you want to give a one sentence if people don't know like myself what that is. Freaky versus Mogul Mowgli. My vote is pretty obvious here. I tend not to go for sort of kind of horror type movies, which is what I understand Freaky is. And I was blown away by Mogul Mowgli. It could be someone's best movie of the year as far as I'm concerned. But make the case for Freaky if you wish. Yeah, I mean, Freaky is like kind of in the in the realm of Happiest Season, where it's a very fun movie. It's very it's a very good version of what it is, which is a you know Freaky Friday kind of reprise with a lot of uh, horror movie homages. Um, it's a uh, Vince Vaughn plays this serial killer who, because of some whatever, uh, switches bodies with a teenage girl, um, and they have like twenty four hours to like figure out what to do in order for them to switch back. If the idea of seeing Vince Vaughn basically portraying a teenage girl for most of the movie sounds like a lot of fun to you, then it'll be a lot of fun because it is. It is extremely violent. Like it really leads into the to the horror stuff a lot. So again, you know, some people just like don't have any appetite to watch that. So, you know, that just might put you off. But it's it's a very fun, well done version of what it is. Uh, but again, not not remotely essential. That, 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 that seems pretty fair. Okay, well, let's stay on the horror movie female, you know, killer type uh, train. Um, actually, we could go in two directions because both matchups have one of those. But let's go with Invisible Man versus The Trip to Greece. I had never seen any of the Trip movies. I saw all of them in the best. I've described this on previous episodes as the most fun I had watching movies this year was the week or so when I caught up and saw all the Trip to Greases. 
um, I don't know if we will kind of call the trip to Greece somewhat in the small acts vibe, which is, I mean, in this case, they actually were TV series that was then kind of redone and released as movies. And obviously they all work together very thematically. Um, so yeah, I think the trip to Greece is very fun. I'll vote against my choice, which is, I like the trip to Greece more than I think I will maybe like Invisible Man, which I haven't seen, but I would probably be more sympathetic to Invisible Man being in the, in the tournament than trip to Greece. It mm-hmm. definitely is a horror movie, but I think it's more psychological horror thriller than body horror and jump scares. And it is very relevant to contemporary issues um, along the same lines as promising young woman dealing with abuse and gaslighting and psychological abuse just as much as physical abuse. Our last matchup, Birds of Prey versus Another Round. Birds of Prey I saw, I thought was really fun. I really enjoyed it. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think the tone of the movie is, is really well done. Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn was just awesome in it. Another round I haven't seen, but I would like to. So what, what I would propose, going back to our pin from earlier, and mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what your take is on Birds of Prey. I don't remember if you've even seen it, is that I would like to see both of these movies included and Blow the Man Down is expendable. I don't feel strongly enough about Blow the Man Down. Birds of Prey is like a pushover movie. Like to That's me, fair. it's like the 33rd. We right now have eight finalists from these 16, which is what our goal was. But Av has convinced me without really saying anything over the last week that we should actually include what I call the so-called 2020 movies. So we're probably going to include Nomadland. Is that correct, Av? And I, was, I think it should be in there. I mean, it's, it's a movie that at this point, like if you're, you know, if you're on the internet and you want to see it, you can see it. To me, it's like silly to like skip these movies because then we're just going to like end up never including them because these are movies that are going to be eligible for the Oscars this year. To the extent that me and you have both seen them and that other people have the opportunity to see them. We should Plus, just, like, as I said earlier in the episode, like we're going to put our best movies of 2020 episode. We're going to practically, we'll probably record it in what, like, let's say mid-February, and release it in like mid to late February. And No Man Land is coming out, I think, February 22nd. So it'll probably come out around the time when our episode. So like, to my mind, that kind of... of Yeah, and like, this is a movie that is like, almost certainly going to be nominated for Best Picture. I think it has a good chance of winning. You know, know, why don't we, we'll talk about it more next week. For the anti-Oscar fans out there like myself, to me, I'm much less concerned about the Oscars. I'm more concerned about the fact that I do think part of talking about movies, particularly in the context of a year, is being part of the conversation. And well, yeah, well, that's I, what I mean. I, I yeah. mean the same thing by that. Like, to talk yeah. about it in, in February of 2022, I think it's just going to be silly. Yeah, point. because it'll be on no one's discussion of, like, the top movies of the past year, and we'll just, you know, we'll have missed the kind of the boat, so to speak. Which, if anything, you know, there will be pod was ahead of the boat with uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. You could make a strong case was a 20... 19 movie, but then got a double release and came out in 2020 and then, you know, made us look really smart, I would say, by its, its popular reception. Let me summarize the eight that made it in and maybe just give me your quick ranking because it might be with No Man Land that we have to sort of let one or two of these slip. I'm not sure if we're at 32 or 33 here. Shithouse, Baccarat, The Platform, The Kid Detective, Another Round, Mogul, Mowgli, Invisible Man, and Birds of Prey. How would you rank those eight? Um, I, I think Birds of Prey, I'm fine with putting last out of those. Fine with that being the first to go if we have to dump one. The Kid Detective and Another Round both sound like very fun movies that I would enjoy. Mogul Mowgli sounds like a movie that I feel like might be hit or miss for me personally. Yeah, that's fair. Um, favorites are The Platform and Shithouse. If they're it was very, Platform They're very close. Um, I think I would probably side with Shithouse just because I think The Platform has more problems with it. I think the platform is more essential, but Shithouse is better, if that's a way yeah. of, uh, so, of splitting the difference. I'm going to put Baccarat as one. I know you didn't even put it as one, but like, 
I'm sympathetic to the platform in Shithouse. I just think there's a lot, I don't think Black is a perfect movie, but I just think that there's a more movie there. I think it's a more like, as, as you said earlier, it's, it's, a, it's a more potential number one of the year for someone. And therefore of these eight, I would say like, I put back a route toward the top. I'm comfortable putting like a shithouse and a platform somewhere after that. Look, last year, as I recall, we ended up having play-in for the 32nd spot because like one of our guest voices said that Tom Hanks, Uncle Roger's movie was the number one of the year and we hadn't even included it in the bracket. So we gave it a play-in. Right. Just so our listeners know, we will put out the 32 movie bracket. It'll be ranked as we do by sort of the average of Letterboxd, Rotten Tomato, IMDb, blah, blah, blah. So the ranking going into the bracket, the number one to number 32 is not obs and mind preference. So the ranking will be by consensus critics. People can play around with it, pull it out, send it in, and we'll be in touch with dedicated listeners as to how they can be a part of our best of the best of 2020 episode. Sounds great. I've been wanting you.